0: With its complicated history of feuding nations and nationalities, it's no
1: simple task for the European Union to
0: address the needs of people in 27 member states.
1: The European social model that the European Union itself actually exemplifies is more based on an idea of freedom from. Freedom from hunger. Freedom from want. Freedom from fear of another war. Freedom from an old age. Hi,
0: I'm Rick Steves. Political experts from both sides of the Atlantic help us to understand the European political model and the issues facing modern Europe in just a moment. And Paris is home to well over a hundred museums. We'll look at a few of the less obvious favorites with a local guide, including the Cluny Museum, which houses the exquisite Lady with a Unicorn
2: tapestry. It is a museum with a magnificent collection of medieval artwork. You learn, really, about the Middle Ages.
0: Get better acquainted with Europe today on Travel with Rick Steves. It's a crazy, complicated continent of different languages and customs, but they're trying to work and live together for a common purpose. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll sort out how people from Greece to Ireland are organizing their society within the European Union. And later in the hour, we'll take a peek into some of the less obvious places where you can enjoy the art and romance of Paris. Imagine 1947 in Europe, Eurovisionaries sitting in the rubble of a bombed-out continent, shaking their heads, thinking, we've just blown ourselves to bits twice in our own lifetime. And they thought, we've got to do something about that. European visionaries got together after the destruction of World War II and decided, we need to integrate our economies in order not to go to war again. Since then, Europe has been sort of in an evolution towards Union, and it's a tough sell because you don't have any meaningful union without talking sovereign states into giving up some sovereignty, and every time you hear a headline, it seems like Europe's going down the tube, but I think for 50 or 60 years now, Europe has been in a stuttering kind of way, two steps forward, one step back. I believe the European Union is here to stay, but it is confronted with some serious challenges, and we're going to get an update on that today, joined by two experts on contemporary issues in the European Union. We're joined by Ben Curtis, who teaches political science at Seattle University, And Ben is the visiting scholar at the EU Center at the University of Washington. And Hilburn Baez joins us, who's a founding member of the European Center for Defense, Security, and Environment in Brussels. And he's a lecturer on political geography at Brussels' European Communications School. Ben and Hilburn, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure.
3: Hilburn, first of all, tell me more about your organization in Brussels. Okay, so the European Center for Security, Defense, and Environment is intended to find a common platform for two movements that are rather important. One is the increased securitization of our, our lives and of uh, our need to defend Europe at a European level. And the other trend, which is that of increasingly including environment to many of our decisions. Um, so basically, it's talking about military issues and environmental issues confronting Europe. Yes, exactly. In particular, confronting the European military identity.
0: And you are living in Brussels, and I understand about a third of the population of Brussels are people like you who are in the bureaucracy of the European government.
3: For a city of a million, we have 200,000
0: diplomats and emissaries. Wow. And you've got some pretty tough challenges. Now, Helper I I gave my little thumbnail sketch about the birth of the European Union and its vision. How would you react
3: to that? I think it's uh, it's very accurate. What needs to be considered, however, is often we're afraid to see it as a, a sort of a budding nation, it's nothing of the sort. It's a series of compounding treaties, which date back to, uh, to the 1950s. The uh, European coal and Steel Community started in 1956, and that was a treaty which included a portion of the countries that are currently Europe. And it's a treaty that continued to exist until 1992. Was this vision to integrate the economies of Europe
0: two-pronged, the idea there's an efficiency in having free trade between industrial superpowers like France and Germany, and the beauty of integrating the economies so war is less likely.
3: Exactly. Coal and steel were at the time what was most necessary to fight a war. Integrating those markets would prevent stockpiling strategic reserves between the large. Ah. So that's nations.
0: that's pretty fundamental then. It's hard to go to war if you can't stockpile reserves. Yes, exactly. Ben Curtis, if you were a doctor. And uh, the European Union came into your office and said it wasn't feeling well. <laughs> uh, you know, you hear a lot of people saying Europe is doomed. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what would your prognosis be?
1: Right. Well, I think the European Union is going to need some medication, but I also am actually quite optimistic for a ultimately successful recovery. I'm not a doomsayer. I try to avoid being a two-starry-eyed optimist, uh, one of these Americans looking across the Atlantic and seeing the model that's been created in the European Union and the promise in it, but you have to admit that right now Europe isn't a bad patch. Those who are most pessimistic see the squabbles over um, the bailouts for the countries that, that have had the debt problems, see the problems the euro is having with kind of governing this common currency across all these economies, which are very, very different, and they say, you know, the European model is broken. But what I believe personally is that there's so much political will behind this 60-plus-year project to keep it together that solutions will be found there may be some pain in the short and medium terms but in the long term you're going to So, come so out
0: political of it. well for instance mm-hmm. Greece is in terrible debt crisis and who bails them out Germans Germans take a huge personal expense at this and what's their attitude they've just given a bunch of in their view lazy Greeks who are disorganized and consume far more than they produce they just bailed them out what's the attitude among 70 million Germans
1: Right. Well, I think you've described it pretty well. Um, the interesting thing about so much of European integration over these last several decades, and we're seeing kind of the chickens coming home to roost in this sense, in that it's always been an elite driven project. How often have the rank and file Germans or Frenchmen or Italians, how often have they really said, Yeah, we need to bind together?
0: I've noticed that because as the European has gone through, as Hilbert said, a series of treaties and so on, it seems like it is the political and industrial, I guess, elites that are actually trying to sell it to the populace in recent um, plebiscites or elections, Hilburn?
3: Uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, a word that was fashionable in particular about, uh, oh, uh, 10 years ago was was the idea of a, of a um, democratic deficit. Uh, a democratic uh, deficit. In other words, the people don't want it and we'll have to explain to them why they do want it. Well, it's not exactly that. No, it's not, it's not that people don't want it necessarily. It's that there is a general sort of permissive apathy of the evolution of European affairs, except with those people who have genuine immediate interests. And who would have the immediate interests? Those elites in the business and political community that, uh, that we discussed. So the
0: whole idea of creating a free trade zone of 400 million uh, Europeans lets Europe compete with free trade zones like the United States of America and emerging super economic powers like India and China.
3: That's the intention.
0: That's the intention. So today, if we look at it, we do have, I mean, ballpark 400 million plus people all in a free trade zone, most of them 300 million plus with the same coins jangling in their pockets. And you've got the uh, extra dynamic of an aging continent, right? Europe is is in sort of crisis with its uh, geriatric demographics.
1: The question is, whom does Europe benefit, right? Whom does European integration benefit? And apropos of the democratic deficit, I don't want listeners to come out of this thinking that this has been something that is completely imposed upon you know 500 million european citizens without their consultation and without necessarily them wanting it because we have to remember that much of european integration has always been this kind of french driven project and a french driven so, project. project right i mean the french why would the french drive it for reasons i think a lot of people can guess and which hilbert germany yeah exactly hilbert alluded to and huh. so this french model the kind of technocratic rule that the the ruler ultimately sort of knows better. Trust these experts. And it contrasts with what one could describe as a more American model that, okay, the people know best. Let's consult them via these initiatives and let them make the laws directly. This
0: is actually kind of dark. You've got French people who have been, you know, they've been wiped out in two world wars. And you can look at Germany. Certainly. And uh, now the French are saying... They're not saying we give up, they're saying let's unify and really Germany's going to take the lead and France will be at least on the winning side and no longer invaded by Germany. That's quite a remarkable thing.
3: I don't know if uh, I would necessarily agree that they themselves would design a system in which the Germans would take the lead. That's sort of a... But isn't it the reality? I mean... It's certainly the reality. If you look at the
0: Euro, the 5 Euro note, it looks an awful lot like the old 5 Deutschmark note, I think, you know? I mean,
3: it's a, Certainly. And the Deutschmark merited an, an illusion in the Euro because it was a, it's a very good piece of currency. Well, you got, what, how many
0: countries in the European Union now? 27. 27. And it's dominated by a handful of countries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, what's the attitude of the little countries? The The 20 countries that probably don't add up to the other 7?
1: Yeah, and I spend a lot of time in those little countries every year. And it's interesting because there's this kind of schizophrenic attitude in that part of the, the promise and I think the achievement of the European Union over the last 50 years is that it has brought peace and prosperity to vast swaths of Europe in, in a completely unprecedented way. Peace and prosperity. I mean,
0: that's hard to argue with. You can complain about the uh, laughable regulations and a lot of inefficiencies.
3: Fundamentally, Europe has not gone to war. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. exactly. Isn't that a triumph? Absolutely. And in, in its defense also, or to its credit at any rate, there are a series of mechanisms that ensure the role of smaller countries. These mechanisms are um, a little bit complicated, but consist of the rotating presidency. Each country at a certain point has six months and operates in an 18-month troika with three other countries in order to set the agenda and push the European project perhaps a little bit more in their direction
0: Now, that's really interesting, because if we can bring it back to American um, politics, you've got the House of Representatives, which is proportional, and you've got the Senate. Rhode Island has two senators, and Texas has two senators. Indeed. Designed to protect the little states from being bullied. So the EU has a system as something similar.
3: Uh, Absolutely. Packaged in a different way. But but the whole notion is to protect the smaller countries from being dominated by the big ones. Yes, exactly. And... The clearest allusion, I would say, to the Senate in the United States is the idea of the European various commission directorates general. And each directorate general is a sort of a bureaucracy which handles one aspect of of European integration. There are 27 directorates general to be able to supply from each country a commissioner for that directorate general.
0: So you talked about sort of a general apathy where the general electorate just kind of lets them do it. I think part of that is probably because this is so complicated stuff. It's so boring. I mean, it just, who cares about all these Euro-speak kind of institutions? It must be overwhelming for the average guy in Italy when it goes to the voting booth.
1: Exactly, and that's what I meant when I mentioned the schizophrenic idea before is because I think it's unquestionable, and most people, if you ask them, if you get them to think about it, most Europeans, I mean, would have to recognize, yeah, the European Union has been instrumental in helping secure peace and prosperity, but especially in little countries, even in some of the bigger ones, you also ask those same people and they'll say, ah, yeah, but we're worried about what Brussels is going to make us do or what sort of aspects of our self-rule that Brussels is going to take away. And so they worry about that. I personally consider it wildly exciting. It's far from a boring
3: mechanism. It's, it's... <laughs> I'm glad there's people like you who can embrace this. I mean, that is, it is quite exciting. Absolutely.
0: But, and... but I have an empathy for the, the, the peasant in Spain who's trying to figure out what's
3: going on in Brussels. Uh, yes, yes, Indeed. However, there is an overarching feeling in countries that are not part of the EU that they would like to be. Now, that's interesting, and we're going to talk more about that in just
0: a second. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Ben Curtis and Hilbert and Bies. We're talking about contemporary issues in the European Union. We're exploring contemporary issues in the European Union right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Ben Curtis teaches political science at Seattle University, and he's a visiting scholar at the EU Center at the University of Washington. And from the core of the EU in Brussels, Hilbrun Bys is part of the nonprofit European Center for Defense Security and Environment, and he lectures on political geography at the European Communications School. They're here to help us better understand how the Europeans are trying to harness their economic power and address social problems with a political structure that's uniquely their own. We'll take your calls in a bit at 877 333 7425. We're talking about the European Union and its evolution and the challenges it faces. It's fascinating to me to think that the European Union, this group of 27 states, intent on creating a free trade zone for economic efficiency and realizing from history that they've got to do something so they can avoid uh, devastating wars in the future. And it's been an evolutionary process now for a couple of generations. The sort of fundamental ethic from an economic point of view is there are net receivers and net givers. Everybody's part of this big family. If you're a poor country, you pay in less and you get out more. If you're a rich country, you pay in more and you get out less. But the rich countries know that this big economic free trade zone is only as strong as its weakest length. Therefore, Germans are happy to subsidize the Greeks and the Portuguese and the Latvians or whatever. Hilbrun, tell me more about this net giver, net receiver uh, view of things.
3: Okay. In a formal sense, they are distributed through a program called structural funds. The structural funds are investments that are intended to ameliorate the infrastructure of each country in terms of making it a good business platform, in terms of making transport. Okay, so a new
0: bridge across the Gulf of Corinth in Greece that's built with German money so they can get their gummy bears down to the Peloponnese. Yes, absolutely. There you go. Because the Greeks, they wouldn't build a bridge there. They've used the boat for centuries. So it's a very good analogy. <laughs> Great. Now, the euro is the big issue right now. And the euro, I understand... Well, there's some fundamental problems. Ben, give us a little primer on what they're facing because of the euro. What's the pros and the cons?
1: The euro was a fantastic concept in terms of trying to increase the efficiency of European economies in all these different countries. The interesting part about the euro, it was always maybe more a political project than an economic project. Because for it to have been a fully functional kind of economic project, much as the dollar is in the United States, uniting all these different states' economies, the governance to make sure that the dollar applies equally in, say, California and Illinois and Alaska and Florida, um, we all have basically the same system to make sure the dollar applies everywhere. In the European Union, there isn't really one authority with complete power to make sure that the euro's rules apply equally as well in, say, Spain and Finland.
0: So whereas the dollar works in Alabama and New York and California the euro wouldn't work so well in
1: Portugal and Germany. Because of the fundamental weakness of some of the governing institutions that you'd want to make sure that the rules for Portugal's economy, that it's adhering to the same rules as Germany. So that gives
0: the peripheral countries and the poorer countries an unrealistic advantage, which created in recent history uh, the Celtic tiger boom in Ireland, for instance, and the boom that we had in Spain and Portugal. And suddenly they run out of fake boom time and they got to get real.
1: Yeah, though I would say that the... Advantage that accrued to some of these peripheral countries didn't necessarily come from anything off kilter in the system. In some ways, it definitely helped them because you have the lower wages, obviously, in Ireland or Portugal, where you can have manufacturing there and it's going to be more competitive than manufacturing in Germany. But the big but here is that there wasn't really a good mechanism to make sure that, say, Portugal was keeping its books and make sure that the economy didn't get overheated as well as you can have in the United States where there is some uh, various things like the Fed that have more power to watch over So some of these
3: countries could actually jigger their books a little bit and make them sound better than they were. Indeed, they did, yes. I I wouldn't like to make things necessarily much more complicated, but I do think it's important to draw a distinction between the euro, which is a currency, and the European Monetary Union, which is what we colloquially call the euro, and it's essentially a treaty with a series of rules attached to it. When we say the euro doesn't work... It's not true. The euro works very well. I use it every day. Mm -hmm. And I can certainly buy what I'd like to buy. I love it. it.
0: I cross the border and I don't need to worry about changing money. I buy gas in Germany
3: and I know exactly how that relates to the cost of gas in Belgium. And it has that convenience. The European Monetary Union isn't as young as the euro. It exists since the 1970s. So we've Mm -hmm. already coordinated our currencies and pegged them together. And that evolution has permitted us to create what we call the European Currency Unit. The European Currency Unit was the euro before the euro. It was a conceptual currency that was traded, just like everything else, and became the euro in 2002. So all of the various currencies were just
0: denominations of that Europe-wide uh, virtual currency?
3: Yes, but the direction of the euro is the other way around, that all those, all those currencies worked together, and its confidence was calculated by means of the European Currency Unit.
0: If I try to understand the fix that Europe is in right now, because you've got major economies, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, that are in need of bailing out, My understanding is, in the old days, when a country's economy was going south and they were just not living within the realistic bounds of a good, solid economy, you would give everybody a cut in wages by simply letting the value of that country's currency devalue. And now you can't do that because they're tied in the euro. And the only way to overcome that is very painful deflation in those countries or big, rich countries like Germany just subsidizing them.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, that's the problem currently faced by Greece, is that in the old days, when it controlled the drachma, when it controlled monetary policy for the drachma, it could just weaken the drachma. But now, because... Greece doesn't control its own monetary policy. And then everybody takes a hit. Exactly My right. hunch is, in the old days, Turkey funded
0: the entire big dam project there over in the tigris euphrates simply by devaluing their currency. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can pay off your World War I reparations by just printing money, and everybody's paying without noticing it. Yeah. You go to the grocery store, it takes more wages to buy a loaf of bread.
1: And I want to jump in on, there's kind of two issues we've been talking about. There's one is the big countries versus the little countries. And often the big countries do have a bit more power. Um, in certain ways but we're also talking about northern countries versus southern countries and the southern countries apart from Ireland geographically being in the north they're the ones that have, if you look are having the bigger problems All economically right. speaking.
0: I'm Rick Steves this is Travel with Rick Steves we're discussing contemporary issues in the European Union with Hilburn and Bies and Ben Curtis our phone number is 877-333-7425 you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com and we have Giddy on the line in Los Altos, California Giddy, thanks for your call
1: thank you very much.
0: Yeah, comment for Ben or Hilbrun.
2: Well, my question is about Germany changing their currency. You know, what is the effect on U.S. dollar and the economy of the countries such as Spain and Greece?
3: I personally... Don't believe that Germany seriously is considering uh, making recourse to the German mark. It is, however, a threat uh, that's important for them to make use of, because we should consider very carefully what what would happen if Germany left left the euro. It would be it would be essentially a disaster. We'd be left with a very weak currency and a very expensive program of trying to make it work. Um, that would certainly be the end of a lot of things. Now, it would be for me a surprise if that ever happened. Now, what the effect would be on the U.S. dollar is something that I'd prefer to leave to Ben. But before we leave this yes. dropping
0: out of the euro, isn't it more likely that the peripheral countries will be dropped out of the euro so they
3: can then have their currency devalue and ride out their waves? Can we shed them from the eurozone? Well, I, I've always liked the drachma. It's the oldest currency in the world. <laughs> and, um, and if you didn't have the drachma, you
0: wouldn't have the Greek letters on the euro. It's the only country that gets its own letters on the on the paper money.
3: And that's wildly exciting. <laughs> it is, actually.
1: I guess I would say two things. One, apropos of uh, Germany potentially leaving the Euro, th- I think is right and it's more likely if any of this were to happen that the peripheral countries, the ones who are having the economic troubles right now, would be more likely to drop out. But there is even talk of forming a kind of new Deutschmark zone with say the Netherlands, Austria, and Germany. Do I think that will happen? Almost certainly not. But there's some people talking about it. And the relation to the United States, well, I guess I would pose it for Americans listening in two ways. One, you could be really happy in that because of the euro's troubles, wow, it's become uh, more affordable for Americans to travel in Europe compared to especially the last several years when the dollar has been very low and the euro has been very high. Um, so you can look at it from your own pocketbook and say, wow, that's great. Here's the other side of the coin, though, so to speak, and that is that the euro weakening European integration, European Union, and even the economic troubles there is really not a good thing for the U.S., I'm going to say in the kind of geopolitical sense. And that the European Union is... The most important partner overall, this Atlantic relationship that the United States has with, call it Brussels, but the other kind of North Atlantic countries, that partnership is essential for peace and stability in the world. I'm going to say Americans should not want to see troubled waters in Europe because the community of values across the Atlantic is so important. We're the we're the community of democracies, and we don't really wish them economic troubles. Is my position on the matter? Can
0: the pricing the oil in, mm-hmm. in euro or dollar work into this conversation?
1: Ah, yes, the idea of the kind of loss of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. I mean,
0: if the euro stays yeah. very strong. I mean, the eurozone is a bigger trade zone than the United States.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you, I don't know if this is getting too specific, but there there's some talk about how the euro, in fact, even Nicolas Sarkozy of France has sort of proposed this idea that the euro should gradually replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And that... Would pose problems for the United States and that the United States taking on the enormous debt that it has over the, you know, last even couple of decades, debt is cheaper for the US to take on because the dollar is the world's standard reserve currency. So if the US loses that comparative advantage of the euro, um, gaining in strength, well, that- I, I doubt if we'd stand by and let that happen. Exactly.
3: To my mind, it begs the question of whether the euro is at all capable of assuming that role. I think at this moment, it's it's wonderful to talk about. It's a great thing on the part of Sarkozy to have such confidence in the euro, but it's really much too flattering. They've, got,
0: they've got a little housekeeping to do first, first I think. <laughs> Absolutely. They've got, they've got a third of their population that doesn't have their act together, and, and when that happens, perhaps the euro will be fundamentally strong. Gidi, thanks for your call.
2: Oh, you're more than welcome. Well, thank you. You know, this was something that I read, and I just wanted to know a little bit more about yeah, it. Yeah, and
0: I've, I've learned about it with you. Oh,
2: thank you very much, Rick.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about contemporary issues in the EU. We're joined by Ben Curtis and Hilburn Buys. Ben Curtis is a professor at Seattle University and visiting scholar at the European Union Center at the University of Washington. And Hilburn Buys is a founding member of the European Center for Defense, Security, and Environment in Brussels and enmeshed in all of the political activity going on in the European Union community. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Garrett's on the line in Chicago, Illinois. Garrett, thanks for your call.
3: Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call, Rick. Uh, My question is, how much impact and how immediate of a problem is Europe's aging and shrinking population? And I'm also wondering if there's an EU-wide policy to address this, or what are some solutions that individual countries have carried out or are planning to implement? It's... It's a thing that should be seen at first from the point of view of uh, of member states, so the individual countries, and next at the European level. For the time being, some countries are suffering worse than others. Democracy in Belgium, for instance, is rather positive. We're looking at a, at a very nice, stable population. The Netherlands and France, on the other hand, will be graying. So wait a sec. We're talking about this fact that the European
0: populace is getting old. It's it's a geriatric continent in general. Yes. And
3: you're saying it's a bigger deal in some nations than others. For the time being. Okay. Uh, At issue is mostly the price tag. Old people have become very expensive because over the course of the second half of the 20th century, they have demanded increasingly high pensions, uh, shorter work weeks, and low ages for retirement so old Europeans are more expensive than old Americans?
0: Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And are they happier?
1: Oh, they're, uh, they're overjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> but where's the money gonna come why from? Why wouldn't you be? Part of it is the problem that, that definitely older Europeans are more expensive than older Americans. The reason, of course, being that the social safety net to take care of those older Europeans is more extensive than that to take care of. And they the live Americans. longer than Americans. And they live longer in many cases, yeah. Um. God, those Europeans, they live longer, they work less. I just – they're more content. I know. They've got it all figured out, S- don't disgusting. they? It's disgusting. I'm staying home. <laughs> it's not just the the fact that they may be more expensive, but it's also that, as Hilburn was um, pointing us towards, that in some countries there are fewer young people or people of working age, say, to pay for those pensions, to pay for those expensive old people. And so that's kind of the, the – shall we say – skewed demographic – divisions that some European countries are experiencing. so they have two
0: choices they could have policies that encourage people to have more kids or they could find some big country that's poor and eager and got lots of youngsters. Turkey yeah,
1: exactly. 70
0: million very young country and they love to come in as guest arbiters, guest workers and uh, work like mad. Mm -hmm. and then the Europeans can enjoy their happy retirement. This is quite a quandary for Europe, isn't it? Because it's scary to have 70 million Muslim Turks as part of the EU with all the free borders and everything, but it might be an economic necessity. Consequently, you've got governments and business in favor of it and people afraid of it.
1: Yeah, and, and of the advanced industrial democracies, so I'm talking about Canada, the United States, Japan, mostly the European Union and, say, Australia, New Zealand, of these countries... Japan is in the exact same boat as many of the European countries in that they have this really old population and relatively few younger people to pay for them. And Japan also has really restrictive immigration laws because the thing that makes the most sense, frankly, is to do what, say, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand do, which is allow for more immigration. But as uh, Rick has just mentioned, that is threatening to some of these European societies becoming more multicultural than they have been or at least have been perceived to be for many decades. Yes, absolutely. What, what we need to remember is that Turkey is in an
3: application process to the European Union and uh, that this application process is lengthy and requires certain signals from their part as well. First of all, we have to ensure that Turkey recognizes Cyprus because Cyprus is a member of the European Union and if they don't recognize Cyprus, they can't be part of this sort of treaty. In the process, there are 35 chapters to what we call the acquis communautaire, That's a, a sort of a large rule book that goes from um, the quality of governments until uh, perhaps the size of staircases in uh, in new construction. So all the EU standards. We're at chapter five in negotiations now, and sometimes I wonder if it's not in the interest of of Turkey to operate very slowly on that because they're not quite sure exactly what Europe is going to become. Ah, you could wait a little while longer and have a better bargaining position.
0: Perhaps. What is your guess? Will t- ten years from now will Turkey be part of the EU? I would be surprised. You'd be surprised, Ben.
1: It would also be surprised, though, interestingly, like a lot of the American political class, I'm for it. I, it's many problems it would create. I would sort of like to see it. Better for Europe in the long run. Yeah.
0: Garrett, um, thank you for injecting that into the conversation and thanks a lot yeah, for David. your call.
1: Okay. Thank take you care. Very
0: much, Rick. <laughs> Bye now. Bye. I hear a lot of people complaining about Europe because they are unable to speak with one voice when it comes to military issues and foreign policy. Hilbert, what's the latest on
3: that? The latest on that is, um, uh, 2010. Beginning of it was uh, the year where we uh, started setting up a thing called the European External Action Service. And the EEAS is headed by a lady by the name of Bernice Ashton, who had the job all year long to create a foreign service for the European Union, sort of a State Department for the European Union. But more than that, it also includes the military chiefs of staff, the uh, European Defense Agency, and uh, also a certain uh, intelligence branch as well as cooperation and development. So it's a very large portfolio for one person to handle. Needless to say, now at the beginning of 2011, there isn't a formal organogram created for it yet. But uh, we've got a four-year experimental so phase. So there is a
0: vision and a plan where Europe can speak with
3: one voice on defense issues? Yes. Famously, uh, Henry Kissinger had complained that, when I call Europe, who do I speak to? Today, if um, Ms. Clinton would like to call Europe, she picks up the phone and asks to speak with Baroness Okay, so Kissinger's complaint no longer rings so true. It rings less true. Less true. It'll take, it'll take some
0: years before it's complete. But it really is a matter of giving up sovereignty. I mean, countries can make a lot of concessions for
3: trade and so on, but when it comes to going to war, that's a tougher sell, probably. It is. You have to realize that it's not a sovereign organization. It remains an intergovernmental. Organization meaning that once we decide to have a military operation, we have to decide that we want it, who wants it, who would like to participate, and who's going to commit funds to it.
2: Last night I had the strangest dream I ever
0: had before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put
2: an end.
0: We'll finish our look at some of the issues facing the European Union as a political force in just a moment. Then we'll enjoy the pleasure of Paris with a look at some of its less-visited but no less rewarding museums, where you can absorb the wonders of the Middle Ages, the Impressionists, modern art, and the surrounding tableau you find in the streets and parks of Paris. I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're probing into the ways and whys of the European Union. We'll finish up in a moment with our guests Ben Curtis and Hilburn Buys. Ben's an associate professor of political science at Seattle University. In Brussels, Hilburn helped to found an agency called the European Center for Defense, Security, and Environment. Then we're off to Paris. In a typical display of European unity, Dutch-raised Elizabeth Van Hest has lived much of her life in Paris. She'll suggest some of her favorite uncrowded places to get inspired by the city's many specialty art museums and to breathe in the romantic atmosphere of Paris. You know, this is such an exciting topic, and it's, it's a continuing story. Uh, it's sort of an evolution, as I mentioned, kind of a stuttering evolution. Unfortunately, it's the headlines that always show the, the disappointments, but I, I think it's a, generally a moving forward process. Ben Curtis, when you look at the fundamental difference between Europeans and Americans,
1: how do you describe it? I would boil it down this way. I don't want to create too gross an overgeneralization, but I think this will illuminate some important things, especially as speaking as an American who spends a lot of time in Europe. In the U.S., we really value freedom, you know, from freedom fries to the freedom to own as many guns as you want that some people believe in, from the freedom to, you know, paint your hair whatever color you want it to be, to live wherever you want to live and have as big a car as you want, all those kind of things. Freedom is obviously central to the Americans' conception of themselves and their conception of their country. In really crass rhetoric, then it's posed as, well, the the Europeans don't believe in freedom. Oh, the French, you know, it's less free. But the key difference that I see is they're differing conceptions of freedom. Americans really believe in what I call freedom to. You have the freedom to own guns. You have the freedom to drive your Hummer around. You have the freedom to maybe even start up your business a little bit more easily. The European social model that the European Union itself actually exemplifies is more based on an idea of freedom from. Freedom from hunger freedom from want, freedom from, say, fear of another war, freedom from an the, old age. The
0: terror of how will you handle a catastrophic health
1: problem. Exactly, all those things. And so it's not that they're less free, it's that there are these different conceptions of freedom that really kind of animate the societies.
0: I'm not very schooled in sociology and so on, but uh, there's this notion of the social contract. How do people live together? What concessions do you make so you can live efficiently and peaceably and comfortably
1: overlapping a little bit. Exactly. And I would say that putting it in terms of the, the freedom issue that I was just discussing, the American social contract is, yes, you have more individual liberty, more autonomy even, you might say, than in many European societies. But the social contract does not include the idea that, okay, well, here's the things you don't have to worry about, such as going bankrupt from healthcare costs. The European social contract is... Maybe less free on American standards and that you don't really have the freedom to go live in a cabin in the woods and, and stockpile military weapons. But you do have, according to the social contract, you have the freedom um, not to have to worry about catastrophic healthcare costs or utter destitution. So maybe that relates to the
0: fact that we've got this
1: endless expanse
0: of land and elbow room and Europe is much more densely populated and they've been there a lot longer so they get the Rousseau notion of the social contract, and we get the you can do anything you want as long as you don't bug other people, Locke version of the social contract. Or
1: I would even say it also relates to back where we started this conversation, which the European experience in the 20th century, which was utterly catastrophic. And so the firsthand experience of so many Europeans with destruction um, and despair – has, I think, motivated the idea to, well, what can we do to stop that from happening?
0: Compared to a country that has, in no living memory, hosted a war. Exactly. Hilbrin buys Ben Curtis, what a fascinating discussion. Let's stay tuned and see uh, how Europe deals with the impressive challenges confronting it today, and uh,
1: hope to have you back again. Thank you, Rick. Thank everybody. you, Hilbrin.
0: <laughs> Brussels may be the political capital of the European Union, But for me, Paris will always be the heart of Europe. Up next, it's a guided exploration of some of the places that may not be at the top of your sightseeing list in Paris. But these places offer no less of a rewarding experience. It's a magnificent city, I want to talk about the museums of Paris, not the big ones necessarily, but the wonderful little charming museums and special ways we can get an insight into the great culture of France and of Europe. I'm joined by Elizabeth Van Hest. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Thank you, a bonjour. Bonjour. You are so French to me, but you're actually a Dutch girl. Tell me how a Dutch girl ended up in Paris.
2: Oh, like many others. You see, we go there because the French language is extremely difficult. We learn it at school. You study, study, and then after you pass your exams you really can't speak so i thought i had to go to france and i had a so great so in, in chance. the netherlands
0: you learned enough to get the, the pass the class but you realized oh, yes. you needed to know better so to you, be honest so my went...
2: english is still from school oh yeah i never went to an english speaking country because you see i intended to i was going one year to france and then to maybe australia or england or and then to a German-speaking country, because it was a long time ago, and that uh-huh. were the three most important languages for us. But then... You went to Paris? Yeah, I never left.
0: Never left? I'm still there. That was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, wow. and now you're a guide in Paris.
2: Yes. Wow.
0: When you have a visitor coming to Paris, and you want to just really find a charming small museum, an underappreciated museum, where do you take people?
2: Well, I first tell them that every corner in Paris is a museum. For me, walking along the River Seine is a museum, but a lively museum. So how so? Because there's so much to see, Rick. If you just walk through a street in Paris, you look up and you see something new, even after you have lived there for 38 years.
0: You know, you said look up. That is so important, isn't it? Yes, yes. If you don't look up, all you see is 21st century people, which is not bad, but don't
2: forget upstairs. Especially in Paris. Yeah. Uh, well, mind, of course, where you're walking, don't hurt your <laughs> legs, because uh, we were very indisciplined in Paris. We parked the cars, you know, half on the street, half on the sidewalk. So they put very often those little pillars
1: right. to avoid
2: that.
0: Those pillars are, are positioned in a way that can be very painful if you walk oh, into yes especially yes. if you're a man.
2: But well, no, they're low. It's uh, it's your it's your, leg. your knees. Okay, maybe <laughs> oh, it's I'm... even below your knees. <laughs> okay, but well, uh, believe me, it, uh, well, they have other. But we speak about that another time.
0: If you're in Paris and you yes. want to be swept away by the exquisite, sumptuous, artistic richness of the Middle Ages, yes, where do you go?
2: I go to Cluny, the Cluny Museum.
0: Yes, right there in the Latin Quarter. Yes, why?
2: Because. You know some of our smaller museums they are housed in a building that was never built to become a museum right so first of all you have a special atmosphere right hotel de cluny was built at the end of the 15th century, right. for the abbot of Cluny. You know, this big, big order, religious okay. order, yeah. that has been founded, I think it was 910, in, in Burgundy. And they had their house in Paris. So this
0: was a mansion for a very important church leader. Exactly. And today, what do you find inside? And
2: today, uh, thanks to an, uh, a private collect- music collector, yeah. it is a museum with a magnificent collection of medieval artwork. But also your stencils, you know? You learn, really, about the Middle Ages.
0: Little utensils, you mean? Yes. Little uh, yeah, things that you, that you live with. Yes. So you get an intimate understanding yes. of medieval life in the Cluny Museum, CLUNY, and for me, this unicorn tapestry. Oh, that is it so is, beautiful. And you just look at that, you know, it's, it's dark but beautifully lit, so your attention just goes to this yes. exquisite tapestry. From what century is this?
2: Um, it's medieval And I don't think anybody knows really the exact date, let's say around 1400.
0: Okay, so it's uh, before the Renaissance, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah, and you get the exquisite character of the Middle Ages, both the elegance of the wealthy people and the delightful little details.
2: Yes, you know, the lady... Because yep. she is in fact a person, uh, the main person. Because the, she's a the, historic individual. The, t- the title is the Lady with the Unicorn.
0: Oh, that's right.
2: And this lady, oh, she's a wealthy lady. I always look at her clothes, and she's dressed like the people. Wealthy people were dressed, of course, in those days. You see, uh, always double layers, and to show how wealthy you were, you would lift up the upper layer, and you could see the dress in underneath. So, it so she was should proud be a, of her wealth, and oh, she showed it so. off in her
0: fine fabric.
2: Oh, I think so. And she's she's covered with beautiful jewelries, and on each scene, she has another uh, haircut, or her wow. hair is covered by a different...
0: Now, hair. that's one occasion, Elizabeth, where I was so thankful to have the information provided by the museum, so I could uh, try to bring some meaning to each of those beautiful panels. mm mm-hmm. When you read about it, you get into a medieval mind frame.
2: Yes. No, it is beautiful. You see, uh, the tapestry is red, and everywhere there are flowers, yeah. tiny little birds and animals, and there is a kind of a, an island, a dark green-blue island on which the lady is standing. And uh, sometimes there is a, a smaller lady next to her, which probably is a servant, and uh, of course the animal the unicorn
0: and what is the symbolism of the unicorn why is that oh
2: there? um well that's a, a a mysterious mythological figure um animal that according the legend can only be caught by a virgin
0: oh so it's yes. uh, all wrapped up in this wonderful lady and she's a aristocratic woman or a yes,
2: whatever yes we we think it was woven maybe as a wedding present.
0: So if you're inspired by this sort of um, elegance from the uh, centuries past and you want to go to the best Gothic interior, where would you go?
2: Saint-Chapelle. Easy question. Yes, and it has been restored many times.
0: Now, this is a cathedral of glass.
2: Yes, not a cathedral.
0: No, I mean, but it's like a a lantern. I mean, in a a sense, it's just like a treasure chest.
2: You know, in architectural uh, expression, you say a skeleton, and this is really a skeleton. If you would take out the windows... You would have really a skeleton of yeah, stone. Yeah, you know
0: that's a very good point. It, it is a, and, and that's the whole notion of Gothic. It becomes a skeleton of stone, which holds all of that beautiful medieval glass. Yes, telling all sorts of Bible stories.
2: Yes, I have often compared the glass windows with the skin. Yeah, you know because your right. skin doesn't hold up anything. Right, it is just surrounding that's the that's skeleton. A beautiful thing.
0: Now I understand that King, which King this is Louis, Louis the Ninth, Louis the That we ninth. call Saint Louis. Saint Louis. I understand, and maybe this is just, uh, I'm not sure if this is right, tell me what you think, that Louis paid more for the crown of thorns than he paid for the building of the beautiful yes. church that he built to house the crown of thorns. Yes,
2: exactly. And he also had a, a beautiful shrine yes. with precious stones. To hold the... the crown of thorns? Yes. When it I... doesn't exist anymore, of no, course. No, it's but...
0: unfortunate. But when I walk up that dark, narrow, spiral staircase, yes, and I pop into that gloriously lit yes. building, it's best to go when the sun's bright
2: Yes, and sometimes people think it has to be very bright and sunny weather. Right. It's not necessary. Okay. Uh, the best is when there is a light that is uh, equal everywhere. You know. Really. Not. Yeah, because not if a you harsh have a light vi- coming in on
0: the side. Okay. Yes, that's if you a good have advice. very
2: bright sunshine. Right. Uh, you can't see really the scene.
0: Nice. That's a good tip. Now let's take another slice of Paris. We're we're just I'm talking with Elizabeth Van Hest. We're talking about the cultural wonders of Paris that are hiding out. Of course, we know the Orsay Museum is a wonderful collection of Monets, and it was the post Louvre collection, right? Yes. A a generation ago, they took all of the different museums in Paris that had art after eighteen forty-eight or something like this, put them together to match the Louvre. You do the Louvre, and that takes you from ancient times until the middle of the nineteenth century, and then we go into the more modern art. Of course, there are great gem museums dealing with Impressionism outside of the Orsay. Where would you go?
2: Well, first of all, you go to the Orangerie. The Orangerie. Orange tree house. Orangerie. You know, next to palaces, and as you know, the Louvre was a palace, they build orange tree houses to house the orange trees. And why did they have orange trees? Oh, Rick, I think you know that. (laughs) Because it was not so smelling very well inside of palaces. So they used orange trees also inside of palaces. Think of Louis XIV. I didn't they, know that,
0: actually. I mean, didn't? I thought it was to impress your subjects that you were a divine monarch, that you could grow oranges well, in a controlled climate.
2: Of course, you can explain it in different ways. Okay, but and tell me I'm about sure this, uh, right. this uh, fragrance they, issue. Well, the first time they used the orange trees, as far as I know, because I didn't live in the 17th century, Right. But um, it was to make it smell better. Lovely. They didn't eat so it. So they, they had the crazy. orange
0: tree uh, house outside of the biggest palace in Europe, the Louvre. Yes. And or, the, or, and, in in, or
2: in Versailles first. Or in mean, Versailles, In yeah. Versailles first. And they used the, uh, the small ones in the Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. And that's why they grew them outside. They had to grow in, them
0: somewhere. And that yeah, in the Orangerie. So today the Orangerie yeah. houses not oranges, but water lilies.
2: Yes, Yes. Uh, that is since, oh, I don't know exactly the date, but in the beginning of the 20th century, it, it already was a museum.
0: It's interesting that people think of the, the Orsay for their Monet paintings, but really, the ultimate Monet paintings really are his water lily collection. Yes. And you see that at the Orangerie.
2: And you know, um, Monet offered these um, water lilies to France... Uh, on the day uh, of armistice, you know, on the day that the First World War came to an end, I didn't he know wanted. That. Yes, he wanted it to be a present for peace. And what is more peaceful than his paintings, the water lilies?
0: That's beautiful. So, yes. 1918, after this horrific war, Monet was he still in France at this time?
2: Yes, he was painting in in his in gardens Gevernay, in Giverny, outside and in of his Paris. House. Yeah. and he was the uh, one of the best friends of Georges Clemenceau.
0: To celebrate peace and to to celebrate peace to remind people that peace is better than war he gave yes. this precious collection of paintings to the government yeah. to the people really
2: because you see his one of his best friends was Roger Clémenceau and he played a very important role politically in those days. So um Georges Clemenceau was allowed to come to Giverny and make his choice.
0: So Monet was thanking Clemenceau for being a force for peace. Is that the idea? Uh,
2: I think so. Yeah. yeah well, that's well. great. And today
0: it. when you go to the Orangerie, and you got to go there. It's right in yes. the Tuileries Gardens, right, next oh, to yes. the Place de la Concorde. And, you know,
2: they have restored it. It was closed for many, many years. And... Uh, it's much better again. And
0: downstairs, there's wonderful 20th century collection yes, of paintings. Yes, that's what I Oranguille. did during
2: the restoration.
0: There's another collection of paintings outside of Paris that's wonderful for Monet lovers. Oh, yeah, Marmottan. Tell us about Isn't the Marmottan. pretty? I love. It. And it's you go through it. You go. Out, it's just delightful to walk through the park from the metro stop to get there.
2: Yes, very exquisite part of Paris. You know, when I was an opergo. So that was 38 years ago. I still saw this uh, nannies right. with this beautiful... Uh, how do you call that where the baby is? in car-
0: uh, car- Carriage.
2: Yeah, you know what A you see carriage. in the 19th century? Yeah. Picture, they were still there. In that, the park. You don't see that no, anymore. No, but you do no. see
0: mothers and their children yes. or, or families yes. there in the playground. Yes, in the playground. Now, when you go to the Mamartan Museum, what was so impressive to me is the uh, the Monet paintings. Mm-hmm. And isn't the painting that gave... The name exactly. to the entire movement there
2: impression soleil le vent. What impression is that? Uh-huh. sunrise
0: impression sunrise, sunrise.
2: soleil le vent.
0: so you can go to the Marmorton and see the painting that gave the name to the entire movement
2: yes, and you know this is what Monet, um, most of these paintings you see in Marmoton, he kept it in his house in Giverny. and once he passed away, first of all, his uh, daughter in law kept the house. And then he had only one son who inherited, and he donated it all to the Marmonton Museum. That's why the Marmonton has such a big collection of Monet paintings.
0: Huh. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm learning a lot about the great little museums in Paris with Elizabeth Van Hest. Elizabeth, we've been talking about Impressionism. Of course, the rallying cry of the Impressionist artist was out of the studio, into the daylight, into the sunshine. Yes. And you, said, and, and we started this little discussion talking about how, in Paris, just walking down the streets is like walking down a museum, oh, yes, if you want to go to a little park in Paris and and get the the spirit of Monet and the Impressionists, where would you go?
2: um well, m- one of my favorite parks is of course, Jardin de Luxembourg, oh yeah, um but you can also go to Bois de Boulogne. Really? Hardly anybody goes there because it's on the exterior of Paris. Yeah. We call it one of the two lungs because we have two very big parks. One of the
0: lungs of Paris, yeah. Yes,
2: because it's green, so it gives the air, and you need air in your lungs. And, and on a, nice, a city needs lungs. And
0: if you wanted to enjoy the dappled sunlight...
2: Oh, very romantic.
0: You could go to the Bois... Uh, bois a,
2: de Boulogne. Bois de Boulogne. And you see, when you go during the day, you walk around, and you can take a little um, barge... Mm-hmm. And you go on an island where, of course, is a restaurant. We are in France, after all. Huh? Of course. And so you can have a nice meal outdoors in the summertime.
0: And then you could set up your canvas and capture the moment. Exactly. Elizabeth Van Hest, thanks a lot, and I'll see you in Paris soon, I hope.
2: Oh, tot, uh, au revoir. Au
0: revoir.
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find many interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss. They're available to download to your portable player or smartphone.
0: Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on our website at ricksteves.com or as an app at iTunes. We'll look for you again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries, all designed to make Europe's rich history and great art come to life. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.